storms above the bay, a land where peace and laughter
weeks I'll have before me to enjoy with you all. But uh, <clears throat> I have to say as I look back that I'm very grateful for the life Master has given me. I have devoted, I can say, every ounce of my energy to serving him. And I don't think that I've done anything that has not been in one way or another turned toward that end, and I'm grateful for it. I've just finished writing a very important book. It is uh, the 143rd book. <laughs> The Yoga Sutras or Aphorisms of Patanjali. This is no mean task. I thought it would take me months. It took, took three weeks. <laughs> no, three, I think, because I did one week's worth before Ted came with his crew. But this last summer, I've been doing that, and then the uh, Seas of Light acting. Then I wrote, while I was not acting, I was writing another script for a movie, um, The Answer. And so I've been a little busy. I would like to talk to you a little bit about Patanjali, because he was amazing. Yogananda was amazing in his all-encompassing wisdom. But the Yoga Sutras are probably the most difficult of all of them. The reason for that being that nobody knows what the hell he's talking about. <laughs> They have all sorts of strange uh, expressions. For example, the very second sutra says, according to usual translation, yoga is the suppression of the transformations of the thinking principle. Well, that's not what it says at all. <laughs> It's important to understand that we are not thinking people. People think nowadays that if you uh, can, can uh, develop the computer to a sufficient level of sophistication, computers will start campaigning for computer rights. <laughs> this is absolutely ridiculous for two reasons. One, that thinking is not you. You are your feeling, the feelings that you have. We can look at it this way. No matter how sophisticated the computer will be, it will never be as conscious or as conscious of being conscious as a worm. <laughs> it won't be. It takes, you can take a little pin and prick a worm and it backs away. It feels and it knows that I'm being hurt. That thought I is not something that is implanted in man as silly scientists believe by some sort of automatic mechanism. It is the basis of the universe, I am. And the second thing is that they 
computer will never be able to feel anything. It will never be, as I said, I'll say it again, as complicated or as sophisticated or as valid as a worm. <laughs> It'll only be a mechanism. Now, what makes us really aware? It isn't the fact that we can think. It's the fact that we know that we can think and the fact that we feel good or bad about what we think. I like certain things. I don't like other things. This is our basic reality, our feeling in a, in instrument, our feeling element, I should say. Take those away and you've got only mechanisms. Science will never be able to reproduce those because they are in the primordial fact that all reality is a manifestation of the consciousness of God. God you know, it's very interesting when you think what Jesus said, suffer little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of God. How can that be? I mean, God created all these complex uh, planets, universes, galaxies, all the things that go on in this world, how the, the seasons follow each other, how the plants come and then the snow comes. And the complexity of nature is just beyond imagination. And God was as simple as a child. How can that be? The answer is that it takes simplicity to really understand anything. And when you read the scriptures, don't try, as most people have done with the Yoga Sutras, don't try to make it a complex thing, but understand that it is all really a basic expression that can be quite simple. Master talked about certain things, and I'm not going to give you the whole book because I don't have time. Not that I wouldn't like to. <laughs> I found it absolutely fascinating to do this book. <clears throat> it is so full of wisdom, so full of that kind of wisdom which touches your life, your heart. And uh, what Patanjali meant in this yoga set, second yoga sutra. It is, yoga is the neutralization of the vortices. Vritti means vortex. It doesn't mean waves. The vortices of feeling, the primordial feeling, when those are calmed, when you don't say, I want this, I don't, I don't want that, I am attached to this, I'm not attached to that, when you have no more of those little vortexes of feeling in your, uh, actually these are all locked as little seeds in its spine, little seed, little vortices that prevent us from knowing God. You have all the power of Jesus Christ, all the power of Krishna, of Yogananda, but you don't know it because these things are siphoning off your energy. You have the energy to create the universe, and yet it's your energy is siphoned off to little small things, desires, attachments. 
when we can get rid of those vortices, what is a vortex? It draws to a center. So ego is at the center of every um, little vortex. It says, I want this, I don't like, I'm attached, I, I, I. The main thing on the spiritual path is to get rid of this sense of I. Now, the ordinary human being will say, that's ridiculous, I have nothing else. <laughs> but in fact, you are a child of God. You are a reflection of God. You've been put into this body, and really, having an ego is a great blessing. It takes 8 to 12 million incarnations to reach the human level. And you have been, yes, a worm. You have been all these lower forms. You've even been a rock. Yogananda said once he remembered being a diamond. All these memories from the past, but it takes you 8 to 12 million lifetimes to reach the human level. And the one thing that the human level has, the greatest blessing and the greatest curse, is ego. Once you have an ego, you think, why? I'm suffering. I don't like what's happening to me. What am I going to do about it? So ego is necessary. Otherwise, well, I think um, animals have some ego, but they don't have much. But I do remember one time in Bucharest in Romania, my brother took his, took our little dog Jasper out for a run. And some dog catchers thought they'd catch him and take him and uh, ask keep him for ransom. And uh, Bob held their net and he said, run, Jasper, run. <laughs> Jasper was the laziest being in the world, but <laughs> he started off, he took off and he understood what was happening. He got as far as he was, uh, until he was completely out of sight, then he hid behind a bush. And they went running after him and running past him and they trotted home. <laughs> and for weeks after that, every time we talked about this, uh, how intelligent our dog was. He might be under a table or a chair. <laughs> he knew how hard he'd worked. <laughs> well, the ego of an animal, nonetheless, is much less than a human being. The human being knows that it's suffering. The human being knows that it wants to get out of it. But that ego, that sense that I am a separate being, while in the beginning a blessing, in the end becomes your greatest obstacle. When you come onto the spiritual path, the most important thing you've got to overcome is this sense of I. I was reading, I remember my father, in fact, in Romania, once was challenged to a duel. He just ignored the man. <laughs> he thought, if you want to be that stupid, go ahead, I'm not. <laughs> but uh, in, in a couple of centuries ago, dueling was a big thing. You've offended my honor. What hell, what the hell does this honor mean? It means nothing. You have to realize that when people insult you or praise you, it doesn't matter. It's not touching you. You aren't being insulted. You aren't being praised. If people say something uncomplimentary, thank them. It's an opportunity to remember that you are not this ego. When people try to hurt you, let them do it. 
It doesn't seem like a very proud thing to do, but it's not. You're trying to overcome this stupidity of pride, this thought that I'm better than other people. I remember one time I used to be um, a little proud of my intelligence. I know I have it. And uh, I couldn't get rid of this thought that uh, I was pleased to be bright. And I was sick of it, and I didn't like it. I was a disciple of Master. And I remember one time in meditation, I took a look at this thing squarely, and I said, I don't like you! Get out! I just, with all my power, I threw it out of my mind. And suddenly it, it vanished. You have to sometimes use violence on yourself to get rid of your faults. But I came out of that meditation, and I saw Master looking over Los Angeles, over the tennis courts at Mount Washington, and I knelt for his blessing, and he tapped me on the forehead. He said, very good. <laughs> and I've never had that problem again. Fight it. Don't, don't, don't just try to think someday I must get around to it. Just make today that day, because you will never know how peaceful and happy you will be when you don't have to keep referring everything back to me, me, me. When people praise you, it doesn't mean a thing. They may have bad discrimination. <laughs> On the other hand, they, they may be right. What does it matter? I remember a woman in church in Hollywood many years ago after a sermon said to me, um, complimented me on my talk, and I said, God is the doer. She said, really? As if I, I knew it was good, I didn't know it was that good. No, that's not what I meant. I meant that even when you mistake, even when you sin, give the blame to him. Don't keep it for yourself. This may seem blasphemous, but in fact, God likes that. He likes it when you make him responsible for everything, because when you do that, then he is able to help you and to get you out of that. We all have faults that we need to overcome, but when we can give him the blame and the credit and say, God, I'm just your child. But this Patanjali, and Nirmala, you want to, I mean, Narayana, you want to come up here and sit down so that I can pass these pages over to you. It's, uh, okay. It's a, uh, yoga is the neutralization of the vortices of feeling. Yoga's chitavriti nirudha. The, how that? <laughs> when we can overcome all those vortices in our, in our consciousness that I wanted this, I didn't like that, I was disappointed in that, oh, I hope so much to meet her, all those things, when we can overcome that, you know, to know God is to know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> is to know no desire, no attachment, no personal thing that you can relate to yourself but to be omniscient. Because when you know God, you know everything. And yet God is completely humble. 
He doesn't intrude himself on us. If we want to be, uh, if we want to hurt people, he doesn't say anything. If we want to be kind to people, he doesn't say anything. But the more, and I've written a book which I haven't been able to get a, I want another publisher than ours. It's called Cooperating with Grace. And it's written by, the author is a Christian. It's not Kriyananda, it's a Christian. I want this book to be read by Christian fundamentalists who would run away screaming if they heard the name Swami Kriyananda. <laughs> but it's a simple truth that everything, when you are kind to people, you're cooperating with his grace. Grace is sort of like the sunlight on the side of a building. When the sun shines in the, on, into the building, it tries to get into the rooms, but the curtains are closed and it can't come in. Our job is simply to open the curtains. When the curtain comes in, everything is grace. Yoga doesn't do anything for you. Yoga is cooperating with grace. Everything you do spiritually is cooperating with grace. But you can't make yourself better. You just open the window so that greater thinking comes into you. And so as you, as you think in that way, this book shows that all good qualities are just a matter of cooperating with grace. And then he does it all. We don't have to pray for his grace to come to us. We don't have to pray, God, I've been a good man all my life. Please help me. He wants to help you. Your windows are closed. Your shutters are drawn. That's the whole problem. We need to cooperate with grace. I think this book could have a big impact in the fundamentalist Christian world because it's talking their language in a way they can understand. And of course it's all yoga, but I don't say that. <laughs> and what I do say is that by loving people, by being kind to people, you cooperate with that grace and that grace flows through you. You don't have to make yourself better. All you have to do is cooperate with grace. It's so easy. That's what makes it so difficult. <laughs> well, the aphorisms. Well, I don't, I, I don't know how far. You know, I've written, the, the, there are 196 sutras. And this book, coincidentally, there are 196 pages. <laughs> so it's a bit long, but it's very full of stuff. Okay, here's 130. The obstacles on the spiritual path. Disease, dullness, doubt, carelessness, laziness, sensuality, false perception, missing the point, instability and backsliding. These are the obstacles. We see that if you can get rid of the obstacles, you're already there. We need to remove the veils that hide God from us. He's there all the time. He wants to come in, but we have certain veils over our minds that make us think that uh, 
Uh, we can't see him. It's our eyes. When you close your eyes, how do you see? When you have veils, how do you see? And so with these obstacles, we are able to overcome one after another. Another very important sutra here is, well, I'm not there yet, oh heavens. Okay, here's one of the rules, one of the sutras. By cultivating attitudes of friendliness toward those who are happy, compassion for the unhappy, delight in the virtuous, and disregard for the, for the wicked, the vrittis or vortices of attachment and desire remain in undisturbed calmness. What you need to do is calm these upsets in your own mind. You don't have to attain anything. God is with you all the time. He doesn't, you don't have to beg him to listen to you. He's listening to you. The very fact of talking to him means he's hearing you. He is acting, his grace is acting through your words. And so he is the only reality in the universe. We have tended to think of God as way up there and we're little, down, little people down here. That's not the truth. He's everything, including us. And when we can get rid of this thought of our separation from him and feel that everything that we do is his power through us, you discover more and more his grace flowing in you. It's a wonderful truth because we don't have to accomplish anything. All we have to do is remove these obstacles, obstacles of ego, above all ego, pride in one's accomplishment, pride in one's intelligence, pride in one's ability, all those different prides. But then faults, don't think that you've committed a sin. Master said the worst sin is to call yourself a sinner. You aren't a sinner. You're a child of God who has temporarily fallen into darkness. But don't make that affirmation your reality. That's why he said it's the worst sin. Because when you call yourself a sinner, you're allying yourself with the lower part of your nature. <clears throat> is there a Satan? Yes, there is a Satan. Satan is that aspect of God who, when he brought everything out in a dream to create the universe, is that power moving away from oneness in him. That is the power of creation. That is Satan. And Satan is there all the time, waiting for his opportunity. When you feel moody, when you feel downcast, when you call yourself a sinner, he's just there. Oh, boy, I've got you now. Yogananda said, I suffer when I see you have moods, because I see, see then that Satan has got a hold of you. Don't fall into negative thinking. Don't let uh, fear. Somebody wrote a long article on how to overcome fear recently. I don't see any problem with it. I always tell people just whatever you're afraid of, face it. Imagine that it's actually there. And you'll see that there's nothing really to be afraid of. It's a, death is the biggest thing people are afraid of. And yet once they're dead, all the books I've read tell me that they love it. <laughs> you, when you 
leave your body, you leave all the, you may be dying of cancer or some ter terrible disease. You get rid of that disease and you're in a free world. Death is nothing to be afraid of. Even your friends, your loved ones, your family, your brother and sister and husband and f wife and everything, all of them really, you'll meet them again. You can't help it. <laughs> Mag magnetism attracts like. When you are drawn to somebody one time and make a bond with that person, you'll come back again and again together. And sometimes people become enemies, and they get born in the same family so they can work it out at close quarters. <laughs> but it's a fact that you don't lose anything. I used to think, well, there's one thing you lose, you lose your ego. Do you know you don't even lose that? <laughs> this is hard to believe, but Yogananda explained it this way. He said that when you find God, when you've, when you've merged in the infinite and you've lost this sense of separateness, then there is still the memory of all those lives that you were John Parsons or Joe Blow or whatever it might be, that you were all those individual separate beings, and now you've merged back into him. So that there is that little bit of separateness from God when you become one with him, the separateness of memory. And that is why when Jesus Christ comes into this world, he is not a manifestation of God himself. He is a, he's a freed soul that has reached that point of absolute freedom where it can merge into God and become one with him. And then very few people reach this point. But the avatars are those who achieve, have achieved moksha, achieved complete liberation, and then out of deep compassion for humanity, they come back. Yogananda said, I will come back. He was a he said, I killed Yogananda long ago. No one lives in this, in this temple now but God. But he said, I will come back, if need be a trillion times, as long as one stray brother is left weeping by the wayside. What a fantastic concept. What incredible compassion. But such was the compassion of Jesus. Such was the compassion of, of uh, Yogananda, of Ramakrishna, of many great avatars. They come back into this world to bring people to their level of consciousness. And they take on the frame of delusion. They have to go through pains and so on. They aren't touched by it. But they do this to help people. Jesus remembered all his past lives. And he had this deep compassion for humanity because he had suffered all those things himself. He too had suffered. So when you think of Jesus dying on the cross, my God, that was nothing. <laughs> you, you think with pain of, for him, 
What was what would physical pain be to somebody who's conquered all pain? His pain was for the darkness and ignorance of people who even great as he was, they would try to crucify him rather than listen. That's a pain. He came to this world to help us to become like him. Did his death on the cross bring salvation to all humanity? Well, let's put it this way. <laughs> <laughs> About 500 years later, they were people butchering Christians in the Roman Colosseum. They were killing people right and left. Do you say that he brought salvation to everybody? Did he bring salvation only to those who believe in him? I've seen plenty of Christians who don't seem worthy of that. Look at the Spanish Inquisition, excuse me, honey, honey. <laughs> look, at the, look at the Crusades, look at the harms that have been, been committed in the name of Jesus Christ. He didn't bring that to everybody nor did he bring it to anybody who just believed. It is one of the greatest mistakes in Christianity and in all religions, basically, but Christianity is a prime example to think that belief will save you. People used to believe the world was flat. That didn't make it flat. You can believe that Jesus is there. That doesn't make him there. You have to experience it. Faith is not belief. Faith is experience. When you experience God, then you can know that he exists. It isn't enough to know that, um, that some people have found God. Will you find God if you go to church only? No, you won't. You must love God. Jesus put it to us perfectly. He said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy soul, with all thy strength. Do many Christians do that? Then can we say that they even believe when they give up or ignore his most important commandment? He said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There are many people who are Christians. <clears throat> I can't say there are many people who are pure in heart. <laughs> again and again, we find his commandments absolutely ignored. But I believe in Jesus. It's not enough, my friends. You've got to go beyond belief. You've got to understand the truth of what he taught. To be a true Christian is to follow him all the way. And above all, to follow him who sent him, to be a child of God, to know that your goal in life is only to become one with God. It isn't enough to think of going to heaven. Heaven's a low place. People go to heaven and come back here. As long as they have any worldly desire, they will have to come back here. I asked my master once, what about a desire for ice an ice cream cone? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Even a desire for an ice cream? There's no hope. <laughs> but I remember, 
I said to him once when I was new on the path, I said, sir, help me to overcome my desire for good food. He said, don't worry about those little things. When ecstasy comes, everything goes. So you don't have to worry about overcoming a desire for chocolate ice cream. Overcome, rather, a desire to get revenge on somebody. When somebody does you ill, to get even with him. When somebody harms you, to try to harm him. These are the dangerous things. When you, when you have uh, uh, overcome the wish to harm, to uh, blame, to blaspheme, all those things, then you're beginning to understand what it means to love God. When you have ecstasy, you need to do those things which will bring you to him. And that's what this book is about, too. Do those things which will bring you to Samadhi. And then everything else comes very easily. You know, in this book here, it talks about two stages of Samadhi. The lower stage, Savikalpa Samadhi, you can fall from that state. Even when you've achieved the sense of oneness with God, even then you can fall. Because there's still some little ego there. A little ego that says, well, I'm pretty good. I've done something with my life, haven't I? You better listen to me, you slobs. In fact, I have known one person in my life who I think fell from Sabikalpa Samadhi. She just had an absolute firmness of her conviction. She was absolutely sure she knew what was right. She felt that her will was God's will, and everything about her was cosmic. And as a result, I think she fell. She destroyed my life, tried to, but she failed, thank God, because I decided that I had come to serve Master, and I, she did her best to destroy my discipleship. But I decided there's one thing, even if Master, Master himself is disappointed with me, I will never let go of him. That, that was my salvation. I clung to him, and gradually things began to come together. And I found that Ananda and the books that I've written and the music that I've written, everything, all this became possible because I decided I could not leave my guru. And then I, then I found it was really his grace that had made this whole thing happen. It was with his help I was free to do what he had told me to do. Until then, I had to obey my superiors, who kept thinking, why can't he just wait and be told till he's told what to do? I just couldn't be like that. I'm not that kind of person. I have to do new things. I have to create. And he saw that, and he told me, you have a great work to do. But now I've done it. So at the age of 86, it's nice to look back and nice to look forward to, but not too nice. <laughs> I, I have to say that I very much look forward to the... <laughs> But I'm happy 
to serve him with any bit of power left in these poor bones as long as I can be of any use to him. Let's see, I've got Promises of Mortality Part 2. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One thing I'd like to rewrite is the SRF lessons. I'd like to go, Master. <laughs> they need it. You know, I was with Master. Uh, he 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 had me go out to the desert with him when I'd been with him less than a month. I'd just come. I was 22 years old. And uh, he started, he said, I don't like these SRF lessons, I want to rewrite them. And he taught two lessons, he said, he just never got around to it. So he asked Marina Lini to do it. Now she's the president, she'll never do it, and she's never done it. So I feel that in this case, I will do it. <laughs> if God ma makes it possible, because... <laughs> You're frightening me. <laughs> <laughs> but they weren't his lessons. They were gathered from things, lectures and classes he'd given and things people had written as notes and so on. And they're just sort of a hodgepodge. But uh, uh, I think, yes, they are needed. I admit it. I admit it. <laughs> if God makes me live long enough, I don't say lets me. I say makes me <laughs> live long enough. I would like very much to do that. And then, what else have I got left to do? <laughs> movies. Agassi in India said I had movies to do, so I have to act in The Answer. I've acted already in the P Cities of Light. <clears throat> <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> so, Patanjali, for me, I have to say is a real milestone. I'm extremely happy to have got this done. And he, I, I understand it because he talked to me at great length, hours on end alone at the desert, explaining these things to me. And when he talked about the lower samadhi of Sabikalpa, yes, I, he said some people, Paul Bunton fell from that state. He said uh, um, different ones he named. What is it to fall from Sabikalpa? It's to have to wander for many lifetimes. Because your ego, you see, when you reach Sabikalpa, you've got the opportunity, now that you know that your consciousness is infinite, to say, go for it. And most people say, that's what I want. Other people, because there's still a bit of lingering ego, they say, I'm pretty hot stuff, aren't I? <laughs> and so they fall. Well, Sabikalpa is only the first stage. But then Bhutanthi talks about after you reach Nirbikalpa, you're still not free. Well, I'll put it this way so you don't get too discouraged. I know all of you are right on the borderland of, <laughs> of Nirbikalpa, but <laughs> the fact is that when you reach Nirbikalpa, you are free. But you still have the memory of all those lifetimes that you lived, lived with the ego. And you have to get rid of the 
in each incarnation you've got to go through and remember that it was God who played that part so you may have been a pirate in a past life but it was God acting that role through you that is what you have to realize and inasmuch now we come to the subject of how many lives have you lived in Patanjali, I mean in, in uh, the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita, and in the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, both books it says that m many souls were thrown out into delusion with the beginning of a day of Brahma, that's billions of years ago, are still wandering in delusion at the end of that day of Brahma. And you think, my God, how many days of Brahma have I been around? <laughs> It's a scary thought. You may have been several. And because once you've reached the human level, you're by no means free. Then you have the ego to really make mistakes. You can reach the point where you can fall to an animal level again and then rise one. After one animal level, then you come back as a human being. But if you keep falling and keep falling, then finally you may be thrown way down. How far down? To the level of a germ. Think of having to go through all those incarnations, knowing that you are more, knowing that you've had a higher consciousness, and yet there you are trying to struggle along as a worm. This is the truth of this vast universe in which we live, and it is a scary truth. You can rise with your ego, or you can fall with your ego. Being a human being is the last rung on this level. But it's not the last rung if you don't live the right rightly. So many lifetimes and you have to nibi samadhi, you have to go back over all those incarnations. You have to remember, you can, you can see several, you can get rid of several incarnations of karma in one in meditation. Because in that state you can create several visions of different bodies. You can even incarnate in more than one body at a time once you reach that level of nirvikalpa and go through each of those stages of uh, the the, the uh, <coughs> sins that you committed in one lifetime. Not only sins, the good deeds, everything that belongs to the ego, you have to get rid of it. But when you can do that, then it can come quickly. I said to Master, why can't you, once you're one with God, because that's what nirvikalpa samadhi means, why can't you just say, I'm free? He said, you can. <laughs> <laughs> then he said, you don't care. At that point, you don't care. You know you're one with God. You have a little bit of this dream over here to get rid of, and you may use that as an excuse to come back and help other people. But in fact, once you've reached Nobikapi, you've got it made. But what happens after that is that that uh, <clears throat> once you've overcome all your past karmas, and I don't suppose animals have karma, but they have group karma. Master mentions that in Autobiography of a Yogi. When you've got rid of all your karma, you become one with God. 
and that state <clears throat> is known as moksha, fully liberated. Master, when Sister Gyanamata died, he said, I have searched her life, not a single sin in it, and he said, she is completely free. I watched her sink into that watchful state. That is the state of oneness. God is not in, God is in creation, God is creation, but he's beyond creation. You merge into the spirit, that watchful state means that part of the consciousness of the infinite, which watches everything but is touched by nothing. And in that state, you don't want to come back, of course, but a few people do. Those who, like Yogananda and Jesus Christ and other great avatars, they come back into this body as avatars. An avatar is not, like people say today, as in my avatar is a banker. That's not the meaning of the word at all. An avatar is one who has, changed, has attained absolute freedom, freedom from all karma, who has merged himself into God, who realizes that he is one with God, and then wants to come back out of a desireless desire to help other people. But once you've attained true freedom, once you've attained that oneness, and then you come back from that state as an avatar, then you can, the, the one, I, I asked Master this, he said you have to free other people. There were three saints whom, who were discovered buried under the soil, under a lake, and the engineers dredging that lake figured they must have been there at least 300 years because they'd been, that was how deep they were in the water, just the water dredged the mud piling up. And uh, Master said that uh, they were brought back because God didn't want them to find freedom selfishly for themselves. They have to free others. I asked Master, how many people does one have to free in order to attain freedom himself? He said six. But an, an ascending master, one who goes into moksha, he can only, they obviously can't, they can't all have moksha before he gets moksha. It would be, a, if you work it out, it'll be impossible. <laughs> but he attains a certain state of freedom, freedom from delusion, freedom in the astral plane, mukti. But when he has attained that state, <clears throat> then, comes back, he can free any number of souls. The fact that Yogananda was an avatar is very significant for you and me, because he told me something else. He said that a man, a person must have touch with his guru, a physical touch of the guru, at least once in this lifetime. We all think of Master as our guru. We have to understand, however, he's our guru by proxy, because the truth is that he cannot free except through instruments. In that sense, those who are his disciples will continue that line, disciples of disciples. As they become free inside, they too will free others. But his power to free other people through me, through any others, is 
extraordinary. He can free any number of people. And so when you have a Jesus Christ or a Yogananda or some other great master being born in this world, it's not like a great saint coming into this world. They're a great blessing. It says in the Bhagavad Gita that one moment, or in the Indian scriptures, one moment in the company of a saint will be your raft over the ocean of delusion. But you still have to have that touch. And that will come. Master, through me, I don't do anything myself. But everything I do, I do with him acting through me. This is the truth. And I have met people who said, oh, I can go to Master directly. I don't need anybody. And I haven't seen them gain spiritually. Those who have come to Ananda, they've gained greatly because of that contact. So the point of, of it all is that we need to understand that God works through instruments, but it's all God. Master used to say, I'm not the guru. And when I went to Swami Muktananda, he tried to get me as a disciple. And he told me, your own guru said, I'm not the guru. Well, <laughs> he didn't mean it that way. He meant God is the guru through me. Muktananda fell because of ego. And many saints have fallen because of ego. We must understand that when we are on the spiritual path, <clears throat> first of all, we're taking on a big job, a huge job. It's the only job worth taking on, but it takes a long time. I asked Master once, have I been your disciple for thousands of years? I said this because Norman, a brother disciple, said that he had had a vision of himself with Master on Lemuria. I thought, oh my God. So I asked him that question. He said, it's been a long time, that's all I'll say. I said, I didn't want to be a loafer. I said, well, does it always take so long? He said, oh yes. Desires for this thing and that thing take them away again and again. When you finally overcome all those desires, when you know that you're willing to go through hell and high water to find God and nothing else matters to you, then you can find him. And of the people in Ananda and the people who are associated with Master, I feel that many will be free. Leela died recently. I really feel she was free. How free, I can't say, but I saw not a flaw. I saw not a flaw in her. So don't think in terms of time. Time is a delusion. When you can get out of time and achieve timelessness, that's when you find God. So let me see if I can read any more here. Just as a pure crystal or unflawed mirror reflects the true shape and color of objects that are placed before it, so in the yogi's mind upon the neutralization of his vortices of feeling attains complete inner balance. 
he then realizes knowing knower known as one. When one's consciousness has freed itself of all self-identity, the true self shines forth in all its purity and brilliance beyond any reasoned definitions. This is the second or Nilbhikalpa Samadhi. In Sabhikalpa, there still remain in latent form impressions of objective reality. All your, your uh, thought that I'm still involved in this Maya, uh, I said it, I think, best of all when I said, I, the, I, the infinite, the omniscient, I'm still, I'm still an ego, but I'm omniscient. It's a great delusion, and yet it's the first step toward real freedom, depending on how you take it. Remember that in your own meditation. When you go deep and you feel yourself one with God, don't say, I feel myself one with God. That's the delusion. You no longer exist in that state. There's no you to say, I am anything. In Nirvikalpa, you know that there's only God, and you have ceased. That's a thrilling thing, and yet it's the thing that most people are very afraid of. They think that if I can hang on to myself, I've got everything. And yet the wonderful thing, as I said to Master, as, as Master said to me, as I said earlier, you even don't lose your ego because you still keep that memory of having been all those forms. So that when people pray to you and you come to them after being liberated and you come and answer their prayers and give them your blessings, Know this, it isn't the infinite God who's come to you in those forms, it's you yourself. Jesus still is a person. Buddha still is a person. Yogananda still is a person. He killed Yogananda. These are things that are very hard to explain, but I'm telling you from what I can say, and I hope you will understand me, because to say that a person isn't, is and isn't, doesn't make much sense. And yet when you reach that state, you will be free, and yet you will be able to help many other people. Why do you try to help people with giving them a little money or a little food or a job? Find God. Once you have God, you'll be give, able to give people everything that's worthwhile, the only thing that's worthwhile in the whole universe. God bless you all.